0: Philippians chapter 3, and it's really one verse of scripture that I want to work on, but I'm going to slowly work my way up to that verse. But Philippians 3, verse number, oh, let's say verse number 7 through 10, 10 being our key verse this evening. Philippians 3, verse number 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, dung being an old English word for refuse or excrement that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here's our key text, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, it's a privilege to be able to fellowship with the saints and to look into the scriptures. And now for a few moments, as we dive right into this, we pray that you help me to speak clearly. Give us all ears to hear. We pray for the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. We're so grateful you so loved this world you gave your only begotten son. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 Philippi was a city that was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Philippi was a city that was known for its gold mines, so it was a very popular place, even a famous, prestigious place. A number of battles were fought there, and with all of the changes in the Roman leadership, the name of the city continued to change. And Philippi was actually one of those originally Greek cities that became a Roman municipality whose Main language was Latin. They know this from the archaeological material remains that have been found as well as from a lot of ancient writings. But within this city, there was a Jewish, a small Jewish group of people. And then, as we can see here from Paul's missionary journeys, there also was a small group of Christians. I say small. I'm not really sure how many there were, to be quite honest with you. We know from the book of Acts that Paul found some ladies by a river praying, and he went down there and began to witness, and a lady and her family gave her heart to the Lord, and everything kind of just started changing from there. But uh, notice as Paul is dealing with some of the preceding verses, he says in verse three, that we're the we're of the circumcision. He's saying that we're of the Jewish persuasion, which worship God in the spirit. Now That's exactly what John four teaches about Jesus when he was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. So you don't even know what you worship, but we worship the true God. He said, now is the time for us to worship the Lord in the spirit. And he says in the last sentence of verse three, we have no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes so far as to explain to us what that sentence means, that we have no confidence in the flesh. And he says, though I might have confidence in the flesh. So he saying I have a reason to be happy about my background and I have a reason to to boast about where I came from and about my roots. And this is where he begins in verse number five. And you can see he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. Well, that is what the law, the Mosaic law taught. But circumcision, of course, came from back with Abraham several hundred years before Moses ever was born. This also tells you that Paul's parents obviously were devout Because it tells us in the book of Acts that he was the son of a Pharisee. So Paul had people over him looking out for him that were making sure that he his life as an infant was in accord with the Old Testament scriptures. And so on that eighth day, he was circumcised, which was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham in every male child's flesh. Every child had to be circumcised. If it was a Jewish child obligated. To be circumcised. When he said i of the stock of Israel, he's speaking specifically of the fact that is his nationality. He's claiming lineal descent from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob being the name that Israel is synonymous with the name Israel. So notice how he's outlining all of this. He's, he wants people to know his credentials. He does this again in Romans 11 and also in um Second Corinthians chapter 11, where he talks about him being of the nation of Israel and been circumcised and a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So of the tribe of Benjamin, why does he need to mention his tribe? Because even amongst the the Greeks and the Romans, your tribal affiliation was important. So now you've got people coming out of sin into the kingdom of God and people still are interested in that kind of a thing. Benjamin was the son of Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. And when Jacob prophesied a blessing over over, uh, Benjamin, he told him that he'd be ravenous like a wolf. He'd he'd kill his prey in the day and divide the spoil at night. And then, of course, with Benjamin, we know that uh, the story with Joseph, Joseph made sure that Benjamin got double portions and triple portions and even more when it came to the raiment. And everything when Benjamin had the allotted portion of land distributed to him in Joshua's day, he got a nice big uh, fat part of the land in the southern part. The tribe of Benjamin, when all the other regions rebelled against the king, uh, king uh, during uh, Rehoboam's day, Benjamin was still one of those in the regions that held to fidelity with God and walking with uh, with the king. So this man obviously thinks that the tribe of Benjamin is important. King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Let's not forget that. And Paul, his original name being Saul, he very well could have been named after King Saul. And he says a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This was a gentleman who had been born in Tarsus, raised at the feet of a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. He was the son of a Pharisee. He was taught the Hebrew language. He undoubtedly knew how to read the Hebrew language, probably could speak it as well as he could speak Syriac or Greek and Latin. But then in verse five at the end there, he says, now concerning the law, he said a Pharisee. I think that that's interesting because the Pharisees were keepers of tradition. And much more important to them than the Old Testament law were the traditions that were to prevent people from breaking the law. So you have 10 commandments like don't commit adultery and don't steal. And the Pharisees, they were the kind of people who would create rules that were to be applied to keep you from breaking the law, which said, don't Still don't commit adultery. So they might say in order to keep from committing adultery, what you ought to do is when you walk the road, keep your eyes down on the pavement. See? So that becomes a rule. And then pretty soon, just like if you see Orthodox Jews today walking through major cities, you can drive by and look at them. And they just I mean, they're focused. I mean, they got their eyes right on the pavement and they'll walk a mile and hardly ever look up. And if it's a lady that stops and says something to him, they'll talk to the lady and the whole time look at the lady's shoulder or maybe look off to the side. Hardly ever look somebody in the face. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but I'm just saying as a rule with the traditions, they have all kinds of beliefs that they hold to to keep them from breaking any law. And then his zeal, of course, we know was great because of what he did with the church. Here was a man that honestly believed if you didn't live according to the traditions of the elders, you were out of the will of God. And Saul, he was quite happy to see Christians go to jail and to see some of them lose their lives. And his boasting knows no bounds in verse 6 when he says, according to the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. Now we typically teach and say that there were so many laws under the old covenant that it's likely no one even knew all of them and certainly couldn't tell you what was the 377th law out of more than 600 of them. But according to Paul's own testimony, as far as he was concerned, he was blameless. He was keeping every jot and tittle of the law. And I don't think he would have ever liked any of us saying something like no one could have kept the law. He would have said, I did. That's what he says here. But he goes on to tell us in verse 7 then that all those things that profited him, he counted loss. So notice the contrast now. he He's thinking about his past. He's thinking about where he's come from. He's thinking about... His nationality, his roots, how he was raised. And he's saying that when he came into the presence of God and learned about redemption, those things now became of little value. That's important, little value. Now, we, we, we certainly know that everybody uh, doesn't have the, the same kind of zeal that Paul had. Because there are a lot of people, they like to magnify ethnicity and all of that but paul's he trusted in all of these things believing that they made him holy or righteous i don't think there's anybody who who's who's over in um i forget that time what's the time where they celebrate check days wilbur i don't think there's anybody over there in wilbur who honestly believes that by celebrating check days and and uh you know sloshing themselves in beer that somehow they're becoming holy, okay? I don't think, I can't believe anybody over there thinks that, but if they were to believe that, then they would be afflicted with the same problem Paul had before he became a Christian. I I doubt if there are any Scottish people, they're the ones that put the long skirts on, right? The guys put the kilts on. I doubt if any of those walking around in a skirt showing their kneecaps and all of that, and mini skirts and all of that for men, I doubt if any of them think that that's making them holy. But if they ever did, then that would be a problem. We do not want anyone to be under the impression that because we come from old money, or because we come from a very popular and respected name, or because we come from one of the founding families of one of these small towns, that that gives us special privileges. That's excluding anybody if their last name is Bruni. So so understandably then... Paul, he's he, he's taking a look at all of this and he's saying, yes, doubtless, I count all things a loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So he puts the knowledge of Jesus way up here and all of this other stuff that he used to value and esteem. He now considers that to be nothing more than dung. Yeah. And, and I think we can learn a lot from him in this regard. How important is the knowledge of Christ to you? Is it the most important treasure that you could ever have? What would you give in exchange for it? Remember the question Jesus asked, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? There are some people who trade the knowledge of Jesus Christ for this or for that. We've often heard the the story of uh, the, the devil coming and offering people something. And if they would just serve him, he'll make them wealthy. He'll give them fame. He tried that with Jesus. But the excellency of the knowledge of Christ is important. If I know that he was God, became a man, was born of a virgin, born in a manger. okay, and then I realized that God spoke to people who came from a variety of directions with wealth to give to his mom and dad so that later when the persecution begins, his mom and dad would have something to live on when they flee to Egypt. And then come out of Egypt supernaturally because of dreams that God's given them. If I understand that, then I realize it doesn't matter what your background is. Because the question was, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Something can Jesus did. Our Savior did. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter who you're affiliated with. We are very grateful if you have had the opportunity to have a college education. We're excited about the fact that if you have a wonderful house and a nice vehicle, we certainly appreciate if you are able to dress nice and deodorize yourself. All these things are wonderful. But there are many places in the world where people have not had Those opportunities and those privileges and when they come into the knowledge of Jesus Christ there at the foot of the cross, all of us stand there on equal terms. All of us, the rich, the poor. The Scripture says we all meet together in the grave. Yeah. So Paul understands that this knowledge is a treasure that was hidden to me. And now that I have found it. How could I ever care about the traditions of the elders now? That's that's an important thing, considering how important traditions are to many people. You know, some people will put the traditions of their religious sect above what the scripture says. And the Bible says you should know the truth and the truth shall make you what free. So there's liberty in knowing what the Bible says but there's not necessarily liberty in adhering to a tradition that may actually put people in greater bondage. Paul says in verse number eight here, these things I count but dung. So in verse seven, he says, I count them lost. In verse eight, he says, I count them dung. So his estimation of his past has diminished. I mean, the value of it, everything just, just diminished. And, and all of that happened in a split second. When he came to know God. Now think of how fast God can change your mind. Yeah. I heard a guy tell a story one time where he was preaching in an old hospital in Russia. And he said, these were people who were raised as communists, had never heard the story of jesus if you would walked up to him and asked them if, if they ever heard of him they would want to know if he was somebody lived in the community say these people had never heard it they had virgin ears so he said he stood in that hallway and he had 30 minutes to preach to these people so 15 minutes He's preaching 15 minutes, of course, with the translator to make a 30 minute message. So he, he said as he ministered that word to them, he could see through their eyes that it was almost like they, they were seeing their first sunrise. See, where their eyes started dancing and their countenance changed. And, and the, and the emphasis he was trying to make in that story is that here were people in their sixties, 70s some in their 80s or older and they had all of this darkness all of this ignorance all of this sin and the knowledge of Christ cut through all of that in 30 minutes think of that in 30 minutes and you know as they were sitting there listening to it the spirit of God was at work and people were listening to that story of Christ and just a flash came to them and they realized oh my goodness all my life I've been wrong. All of my existence has been for nothing at all. Yeah, I've wasted so much time. And this is what Paul is saying. If a man says that his, his, his lineage and his past and his affiliations are nothing more than dung, that tells you what he thinks about. It. Because there's not a person in here that is, is even interested in that sort of thing. Now, you... You walk your dog. And of course, your dog likes that sort of thing. He likes to lay down and roll around in that. But no, no human being is interested in that. And he uses it to demonstrate what he considers his past. So verse nine, he says, I want to be found in him because he said I want to win Christ. I want to be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. The reason he calls it his own righteousness is because here was the law and the law taught him how he could have status with God, how he could have a relationship with God. And you know the law could bring to people eternal life because they asked Jesus that. They said, well, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That that question was asked to him twice. And one time Jesus responded and said, what saith the law? Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, the second time it was asked to him, then Jesus responded and he said, what do the scriptures say? What does the law say that you should keep the commandments? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Man said, all these I've kept from my youth. But the Lord said, one thing you lack, you have not given what you have and and so what you haven't given to the poor. So you, you notice then they had eternal life on their mind. They were interested in how to receive it. Jesus told them how they could get it. But yet after the cross and Jesus sends out the apostles and they go everywhere preaching the gospel, there's a jail shaking that's taking place. And somebody says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul doesn't say go and do the law. Paul says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Similar questions, different answers, different answers. And when when Paul tells the man, believe upon the Lord. Now we understand then if we put our faith in him, we're saved and we receive eternal life. Coming back here to verse number nine. Outside of Christ, any righteousness that someone boasts of, it's their own. It's their own. It's a self-righteousness. It's a self-arrogance. It's self-reliance. It's a form of pride. Any religion doesn't matter what it is. If a person is Jewish today and has denied the blood of Jesus and the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, they are still living according to their own righteousness. And Romans 10 says that having a zeal, but not according to the truth. They have a zeal is what Paul said about his own countrymen, Jewish people. So verse number nine, but that which is through faith of Christ. Now, here's an interesting thought. If you look again at verse five, you can see he was circumcised the eighth day. So all of this takes us right back to Abraham, because Abraham is the one that received circumcision, had to had to perform it on himself and then on his kids and right on down through his grandkids and through the nation of Israel. But now, rather than us focusing upon Abraham and what the law tells us that we have to do in accordance with Abraham's practices. He says the thing that matters most for us is that Abraham believed and then righteousness was credited to him. You say, well, what, what are you trying to say? I'm saying that circumcision didn't save Abraham. He was saved before he ever was circumcised. See? He believed way back when God spoke to him, when his ancestors were still worshiping other gods. That's Joshua 24, first two and three verses. So our salvation is not dependent upon something that we're doing as a ritual. Think of how many people honestly believe if they are baptized, they are saved. Think of how many people honestly believe if they do take communion, they are saved. But if communion is withheld from them, their salvation is in jeopardy. I've met a lot of people tormented by those kinds of thoughts. Here's what Paul says in verse number nine. It's a righteousness which is of God by faith. The day you acknowledged your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the day that God credited you with a righteousness you didn't necessarily deserve or earn, but it became yours. Yeah. And it's, it's like the old story of the, the guy who came home from the military was a GI guy and didn't have a whole lot of money, but he needed to go to the bank. And this is a true story and, and, and needed to take out a loan of six hundred dollars. So he goes to the bank, and sure enough, there's a long line of people. He waits his turn. He gets up there to the window, and he's telling the lady he wants to take out this loan. And he's telling the lady about him being in the military and how he was in the war, World War I. And he's talking about all the trouble that was involved with that, the people that lost their lives. And the lady said to him, Well, just hold on. I'll be back now. Come and uh, finish up this stuff with you. Well, she went away. Five minutes went by. She hadn't come back. Ten minutes went by. She still hadn't come back. There's a line of people behind him getting restless, wondering what's going on. They're starting to murmur and complain. And then finally, after about 35 minutes, here comes a teller around the front. She's got the bank president with her. And the bank president has trailing him several reporters. And so, you know, everybody's wondering what exactly is going on. Well, this bank, the Chase Bank, at that time, one of the top three largest banks in the world, uh, it they, they had decided with all of the large loans that they give internationally and nationally, they would start a small loans department just for people who needed to borrow a couple of hundred dollars here, several hundred dollars there. And they decided that in the small loans department, when they reached a billion dollars in loans that they'd given out, They would then give someone a free loan, and that's exactly what this guy received. So here he's standing here. He wanted the $600. His $600 brought him right up to the million, so they're celebrating that, and the people from the newspapers are there to write it, and they got people there to take pictures of him. He didn't really understand what was going on, and the bank president gave him a check, said, here's the money for your loan. You don't have to pay anything back. We have given this to you. It belongs to you. Well, well, think about it. This man didn't earn it. Can't say he deserved it. There probably were other people in the line that were more deserving than him. But that's not how this whole thing operates in the kingdom of God. When God gives you something on the basis of your trust and faith in him, he doesn't do it on the basis of merit. It's a matter of faith and trust. And when God gives something to you, then the only thing that's required to give back is your heart and your life to him. That's it. He wants you to be gracious because he's being gracious to you. That man received money that he did not have previously before he entered the building. And he walked out and had everything that he needed to continue on. And it's the same thing with us. We come to the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring to the cross of Christ. I claim and the Lord enriches us. Because we placed our trust in him. See, I told you it take me a little bit of time to work up to that verse, you know. I told you. I told you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so verse 10 then. That I may know him. That's important. A God who would do that, you'd have to be insane to not want to know him. Because the more I get to know him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I want to know him. That's what happens. That I may know him. And then he speaks of the power of his resurrection. Now, he's 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 speaking of of something that he didn't really have access to when Jesus was here on planet Earth. He wasn't one of the 12. When Jesus came up out of the grave, he wasn't one of those 500 that saw Jesus. He didn't see Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. He wasn't there at the tomb like the other ones. And so what Peter and those disciples experienced was totally different than what Paul experienced by having a vision on the road to Damascus. But he says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. What is resurrection? Revival. Taking something that had died, bringing it back to life. Bringing something to a place where there's movement and activity. I want to know him in such a way that I can live as though he is alive, not just in heaven, but alive in me. That's what resurrection is about. To really have a relationship with a king that dwells inside of you. And I I believe the book of Acts is all about that. These people went everywhere preaching the gospel, telling folks about the king, and they honestly believed Jesus was alive. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. He said what he said because he believed Jesus was alive. When Paul went into the area of Galatia and preached, and the man from Lystra who couldn't walk, Paul saw faith in his face and told him to stand up. Paul wouldn't have said that to a man if he didn't believe Jesus was alive. So so these these people lived with the presence of the Lord. And I think we should strive to be the same way. How can we come to know him in the power of his resurrection? Well, We draw close to him. Of course, we read his word. We spend time praying. We get to know him. We cry out to him, bear our heart before him and ask God for the fullness of his blessing and power and the touch of the Lord and the anointing of God to, to abide on us. And this is why there's been so many refreshings and revivals throughout this nation and in different places. There was a uh, you probably heard of Duncan Campbell, who was a Presbyterian minister. And he was the, the spear, spearhead of the, the Lewis revival or the Hebrides revival, some people call it. But there was a, a little little town where the churches were filled with elderly people and younger people wouldn't come. And so some of the men decided, why don't we get together and pray and just ask God for a visitation in our community. Now this was back in the, the 1940s and 50s. This is when all of this was, was starting up. And so right about 1949. And so they, they got together. They prayed all night, prayed until the morning. And this went on for three weeks. They just kept praying. I mean, people were laying, men were laying prostrate on their backs, crying out to God. And there was no more than 30 of them just praying all night, talking to God. Well, one evening they realized the presence of God was so real in there that they knew something was going to happen. So they called, they sent word for a preacher, Duncan Campbell, to come and hold a meeting for him. He got there, preached the meeting. First night, nothing happened. And they said, don't worry about it. We're just going to keep praying. So sure enough, they went back to prayer that evening. And at the same time, at 3 a.m. as they were praying, there were two elderly sisters. One was 84, the other was 82. They were in their home praying, asking God to do something in that little area. And they said that when they all got up to go home at 4, 4 4.15 or so in the morning, Said as they were walking home, you could see lights on in all of these different houses along these farm roads, because people were being seized by conviction, they were being awakened by God, and one house after another had a person or persons in it that were up praying and crying out to God. They said every shop became a pulpit, every home became a sanctuary. Said every heart became an altar, as people were praying, crying out to God. They would, they would walk outside, they'd say in the parking lots, in the market area, said people would be laying down with their face in the dirt, just crying out to God, weeping because they were under conviction. This thing lasted a long time. Here were some people that found out you could know God in the power of his resurrection. They had a formal service, but they really wanted something that would take them deeper and something that would minister to the younger people. So this is what Paul was wanting, to know him in the power of his resurrection. He did not want to know him as the, in the formalism in which the Pharisees knew God. Wanted something totally different, not a form of godliness. He wanted the reality of the presence of God. And then he said the fellowship of his sufferings. How do we enter into that? Jesus said, take up the cross and follow. Yeah, every day of your life. You have to die to self, die to your will, die to your own emotions and feelings and sentiment. Sometimes you're not supposed to live according to your emotions. You live according to what the word teaches. That's how you live. And if you allow yourself to be dominated by your emotions, the adversary will keep you on a roller coaster all seven days of the week. You'll be up on Monday, down on Tuesday, back up on Wednesday, down on Thursday, back up on Friday, down on Saturday, hoping that Sunday you can get back up to the top of the hill. So the fellowship of his sufferings: how could Jesus endure the cross, despising the shame and yet still have joy? See? So to enter into his sufferings is also to enter into everything he had to utilize in order to overcome all of that. So Christians who serve the Lord and have a relationship with Jesus, they know what it is to suffer, because we're persecuted for what we believe. Persecution comes in different ways. My wife was reading to me just earlier about some churches out in California now that because they're singing in church, each church is being fined $10,000. That's a that's a form of suffering. How are you going to fine somebody $10,000 for singing to their God when they gather? But somebody believes they have the power to do it. Yeah. And around the world where there's persecution of Christians, you think about what ISIS used to do when they would take the... Christians and then crucify them out in the middle of the, the square of these little villages. These Christians didn't ask for that. But when you signed on to become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, we go from faith to faith and glory to glory. And there's not a one of us that really knows what's up ahead in our future. It's safer in some places. But when we sing songs like lead me, Lord, and I'll follow takes on a different meaning when you really have to go somewhere and it's going to bring trouble into your life. And God knows it's going to bring trouble into your life. And he specifically leads you on a path that's going to bring trouble to your life. He's not bringing it, but the devil is bringing it. Spirit of God says in three of the gospels that the spirit of the Lord led Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. So that that's the path folks. That's the path. And to, to be, You know, in the fellowship of his sufferings, that means we we sometimes have to deal with all the pains that come with that. And then it says being made conformable to his death. Every time I see that sentence, all I see is me carrying the cross to Calvary. God getting me ready to die, putting me in a position so that I'm pliable enough in his hand that he can take my will and he can take all of my thoughts and he can put them on an altar and they'll die. That's what it means. That's what I mean. Because until I die, he can't live in me and through me like he wants to. And it's the same with you. God wants to be able to think his thoughts through you. He wants to live his life through you. He wants his resurrection power manifested in you and through you. The only way that can happen is you have to be able to suppress that old man or, as the Bible says in a better way, reckon your old man dead. So once you become a Christian, then you just have to believe, Father, I'm trusting that you are going to help me in the midst of this temptation, that I am now dead to that, and it has no power and pull on me. That's where you begin praying, and God's making you conformable to his son's death. I think of the many people who went to the mission field and when they packed their clothes and their luggage, they basically were packing their clothes in a coffin because many of them left and never came home. Never came home, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of the Gortner uh, family. They they used to be in in northern Nebraska, up in the western part of the state. There was a gentleman, uh, Norver Norver Gortner, who was a Methodist preacher. He messed around in... Fell into the full gospel way, and then ended up as a a preacher in in a Pentecostal church. And his parents ended up becoming missionaries in Africa. Oh, it was a difficult, difficult life they they live. Very, very difficult life. They they went there back when before 1920, where there just wasn't any kind of uh, the kind of hospitality you would find today. If somebody went, just very difficult time. But They had no food. They're fighting off malaria and they're living in a hut that was basically a shanty just built to keep inclement weather off of their physical bodies. Well, they they both lay there dying. And and the husband, he's in a little kind of like a little bed over here. And and the wife, she's on the other side in a little makeshift bed, and they're both laying there dying. And he laid there because they were too weak to get up and do anything. He died. There's no doubt. He died. She knew he died. And she kind of rose herself with all the strength she had off that bed and on her belly and on her elbows, crawls over there to where her husband is just so she could lay her hand on that dead body and say, uh, darling, I'll see you soon. I'll be coming to join you in glory. And then she turned herself around, crawled right back over there on her belly, was able to get back up there in that bed and had a little piece of paper and wrote about the last hours of her husband and about what she did. That's the only way anybody knew. And then she laid there and put that little piece of paper and that pencil on her and then laid there and died. Here they went over there to give their lives for people. They led a lot of people to Christ, but yet they were in a place that was inaccessible to a whole lot of people. And by the time it was discovered, it was all too late, you see. But here's somebody that entered into the fellowship of his sufferings. I knew of a, a, a preacher named Brown George. You would have think, you would have thought his name would have been George Brown, but it was Brown George. And he he became a Christian and, and these Different tribes, they did not want Jesus being preached to them. And so, if you were a Christian preacher and you were a native African, they'd take you and they'd dig a hole and bury you up to your neck just to keep you from preaching Christ. And here you are stuck like that with ants, roaches, and every other kind of bugs crawling all over you and there's nothing you could do well they left George that like that for 36 hours and at the end of 36 hours they came back and those elders were standing around him and they said if you give us your word that you won't preach we'll let you out of there he said he's saying this while he's still in the ground he said I I can't give you that word at all well they thought he was just delirious and still saying that they pulled him up out of the ground and and sure enough when they got him out of the ground he started preaching to him again They put him back in the earth for another another few days. Well, some of the other people passing by knew that he was there. They told some of the people in the village where he was from. So the elders over there came over there. They're getting ready to have a big battle and a fight because of how they're treating this man. That is a Christian. And when it's all over, they let him out of there. And when he got up, what did he do? He went right back to preaching again. Led a lot of folks to Christ. But at the end of his Days of preaching, he got sick and nobody ever knew what really happened to him because he died within 12 hours. They thought it might have been some kind of cerebral hemorrhage or something. But every now and then my mind thinks about how many people would have lived had they never got on the path to following Jesus. See, But because they chose to become a Christian. Life ended up being taken short by somebody in China, by somebody in Central Asia, see, by somebody in a prison somewhere. Yeah. There's this verse here again, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul speaks in Hebrews 11 about a better resurrection. If there's a better resurrection. There's one that's not as good as that one. but A better resurrection. That's so what he's saying. So all of us are daily taking up a cross, walking with God because we're striving to know him. And it's because of what we know about him, It's because of the excellency of that knowledge that we won't give that up and trade it for the things of this world. And this is why people don't let go of God. This is why people die in Christ. This is why people die for Christ. This is why we live for Christ. It's so powerful. Why walk away from it. He has a hold on our heart, you see. Lewis Talbot tells that wonderful story about being in Bible college, and he had a roommate. Not just a roommate; he was next door in another room. But he was a Jewish Jewish boy and become a Christian. He wasn't a preacher, but he became a Christian. And his his family, when he had become a Christian, his family had a funeral for him, which even to this day. Jewish families do that. If You leave Jewish faith, especially an Orthodox faith and some of the conservative parts. If you leave the faith, they'll come to you repeatedly, tell you, leave Jesus and come back to Judaism. Leave Jesus. And if you don't, then eventually they, they will. The family will tell you that you're dead to them and they will have a funeral service without your body. They'll do it. Well, this young man, he, he had been writing his parents since he'd been in Bible college and, and all the letters kept coming back. You know, he wasn't getting any kind of response. And one day Lewis said he heard that young man over there just wailing and crying real hard. And he said he got up and went over there to see what was going on. He thought maybe the man was passing a gallstone or something like that. He didn't know what was happening. He got over there and, and the young man was weeping. He's crying and he said, what's the problem? He said, all this time I've been in school, I've been writing my parents and I've never gotten a word from them. I finally have gotten a letter and the letter says, please do not ever write me or your mother again. You are dead to us. And he said, I read that and I just couldn't stop from crying. And and he said, as I was crying, he said, I I just felt like uh, because I cried out to God and said, Lord, why, why is all this happening to me? Why is this going on in my life? And he said, I felt like God spoke to my heart and said, but son, I'm shaping your head for a crown. See, for a crown. Now that's, a, that's a difficult road to walk, to one day receive a crown of life. But that's the road some people have to walk to get that crown. And this man wanted to know Jesus and wanted to know more of him. And this is how we must be. To have that kind of life, that kind of power in possession, in full possession of who we are so that we're governed by him, controlled by him, mastered by him, indwelt by him. So that God comes out of our speech. He comes out of our expressions. He comes out of every handshake and every embrace. He comes out of our witness when we're talking to people. They can see the passion and know that we love God. And everybody expresses themselves differently, you know. Somebody might put a cross on. Somebody might wear T-shirts that have a Christian message. You know, people do it differently. If, if you drive around town every now and then, you may, if you go by the school, you'll pass by somebody who's got out there a bunch of signs for politics in their yard. And that's the victory garden for the one they want to win the presidential race. But, but everybody expresses themselves differently. But I want Christ to be manifest in all of us, so that people will know that something about them make them totally different than them folks somewhere else. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful that your word is true. Lord, we want our passion to continue to grow and increase. We do not want it to wane, and I pray, God, And as you lead and guide us and you give us opportunities to share our faith, we are thanking you in advance for those that are going to come to a saving knowledge of your son. Help each one of us to be bold and audacious and to be strong witnesses for you. In Jesus' mighty name and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen.